This episode of Guitar Radio Show is brought to you in part by Experience Tone. Hey everybody, Mark David from Guitar Radio Show. Have you heard about LockKnob? LockKnob.com? LockKnob is a revolutionary product invented by a musician for musicians, solving the long-time problem of lost settings. How many times have you been at a gig or a session only to have to reset all of your settings on your amp or your pedals because they move during transit? You can upgrade your existing knobs on your amp, pedals, mixer, guitar, almost anything with a pot with an all-aluminum quality made reusable knob that does more than just look pretty. Never lose your settings again. Lock it down with LockKnob. Go to LockKnob.com for more. Hey everybody, welcome to episode 118 of Guitar Radio Show. We're doing part two of our in-depth interview with Mr. George Groon, vintage guitar impresario, expert, author of Groon's Guide. Uh, It it really is uh, uh, the main blue book on on, uh, vintage guitars. There are others, but not organized in this fashion. Today... Uh, George is going to talk to us about, uh, he's going to break down who the customer is, who the collector is, and who the speculators and players are. And there's a difference between all of them. So that's going to be interesting. We're going to talk about technology and guitars, the Relic Guitar Wave, the Bloomfield Tele, which a lot of you know that I got to play uh, just last year, modifications of a vintage instrument and what that means to its value. The crazy things people do to guitars. Uh, his expectations of his staff and who who they have to be, what kind of worker they have to be to be working for him. Uh, we talk a little bit about boutique guitar builders and we get hard and heavy about Gibson, Fender, and Martin. We talk about the Gibson E-Tune and his involvement with Guild Guitars uh, over the years when they were player. Uh, so that's coming up right now. And I want to remind you folks, GuitarRadioShow.com, GuitarRadioShow at gmail.com for all of your burning questions. Don't forget about Scott Gaylor's Tips, Tricks, and Licks. Installment number two is out right now. You can go to GuitarRadioShow.com or our YouTube channel or, of course, our Facebook page to check that out right there. Uh, I want to remind you, uh, we're still uh, talking about Adam's uh, blog on punk guitarists, 500 words on punk guitarists. You can go to guitarradioshow.com for that. Um, I want to remind you, we've got a Nico's Pickups giveaway. We're giving away the 60s, classic 60s Telecaster pups. And uh, these things are so cool. Um, You want to win? Do you? 
Well, just go to guitarradioshow.com. Go to the Contact GRS tab. Put in your information, and in the comment box, please put pickups, please. Pickups, please. And then hit submit, and you're automatically entered. I just also want to remind you, I just found out that the fine folks over at Nico's are doing a 10% discount on all purchases made between now and May 31st, 2016. And when you're doing checkout, just put GRS as your promo code. Put that in there and you'll get 10% off any purchase with Nico's USA Pickups. All that for GRS listeners, for Guitar Radio Show listeners. Okay? Cool. Thank you, guys. Uh, Lockknob, locknob.com. We're giving away a set of uh, some, some lock knobs. Not a set, but some lock knobs. Uh, you want to win? Go to guitarradioshow.com. Go to the Contact GRS tab. Put your information in in the comment box. Write, forget about it. Hit submit, and you're entered to win. All right? That's all coming up really soon. We got a lot of cool stuff on, on, the, uh, on the burner. Coming up, we've got uh, interviews with Mark Ford, Mike Varney. I just did an interview with Vernon Neely. Uh, We've got so much coming up. It's going to be really, really cool. Plus the Dallas Guitar Festival. and Lots of surprises there. So that's going to be fun. But in the meantime, let's get to it. Part two of our interview with Mr. George Groon. Guitar Radio Show. GuitarRadioShow.com. Well, I'm I'm curious to know... I mean, I know that you were involved um, with Guild for a little while, and, and I was involved with Guild. I started designing guitars for Guild in right. 1984, mm-hmm. six different model acoustics, and I was part of the group that acquired the Guild in August of '86. But uh, in fact, I was on there board of directors I was a shareholder and I was their executive vice president of research and development and artist relations and I very quickly found out the joys of being a non-majority shareholder I really didn't have the power to turn things around and do it right hmm. uh, you could write a master's thesis or a PhD thesis on how not to do business by studying the management that was in place while I was affiliated with Guild. Mm-hmm. It was a learning experience, but it was horribly mismanaged. They were one of the very few companies that was acquired at that time in the mid-'80s that failed. Mm-hmm. Henry Juskowitz acquired Gibson, and they made a lot of money with it. Bill Schultz and his group acquired Fender in 85. They made a lot of money with it. Mm -hmm. Martin did not get acquired, but they turned things around, and today they're making a lot of guitars. They're making money, although I would have to say it's unsustainable at the pace it's going. Mm -hmm. Guild is one of the very, very few examples. In fact, it may well be the only example I can think of of a company that was acquired during the mid-1980s and failed. But it was some of the most ridiculously inept management I'd ever seen. Mm. But they were, they were making I'm some pretty nice... I'm proud to say I was part of that group, but I was a dissident shareholder. 
And I start when I start pointing out to the board of directors how they were on a course of action that would bankrupt them soon, they fired me. Hmm. And three months later, they bankrupted. So being right was not necessarily satisfying. Because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. they did lose 100% of shareholder equity. Wow. Now, other companies that either started in business or were acquired by a different management group at that time all did well. Uh, Taylor didn't get acquired. Taylor, at least, is in the same hands. But uh, Taylor, Taylor was not a big company in the mid-'80s. No. Uh, Taylor, in 1986, Taylor's production for the entire year was 681 guitars. Between their U.S. and Mexican factories, they make that many in one day now. Wow. So PRS, 85, PRS was exhibiting handmade prototypes at the New Orleans NAMM show. Mm-hmm. Today, he has a good-sized factory. PRS, Taylor, and Collings, also, all three of those probably make more guitars in now in one or two days than they did for the year in the mm-hmm. mid-'80s. Because Collings, in 88, had himself and one part-time helper.
they're not better than Martins or Fenders or Gibsons. Mm-hmm. Um, but the point is, manufacturing techniques have changed. We can flood the guitar market with more product, but the demographics of the market are changing as well. Now, where it's going to go from here is, you know, I don't have the perfect crystal ball in spite of having one mounted on my desk. What I can say is I'm concerned about demographics. Mm-hmm. What I'm seeing is that the market was run up into a huge bubble from mid-02 through late-06, early-07. Some things went up in price more than tenfold. Mm-hmm. But it was primarily baby boomer speculators. And those speculators are gone from the market. That market crashed in 86, not 86, 2006. Mm-hmm. And there are some of these electric, highly collectible electrics that are bringing about one-third as much now as they did in early you know, 2007. Late 06, early 07 was some of the highest prices ever. Mm-hmm. Like if you look at, say, a 1956 gold top Les Paul model with two P90 pickups, two pneumatic bridge, and stop tailpiece, in early 02, that was about a $7,500 guitar. By late 06, early 07, that same guitar was $85,000. Yeah. But today they bring more like 35. And there's three types of buyers. There's utility tool users, who are some of the best musicians ever, but they still view the instrument as a utility tool. They don't care about collectability. They care how it feels and how it sounds and to some extent how it looks, but they just view it as a tool. There's collectors. They have a whole different attitude, and they'll pay more money for the right guitar than a utility tool user. And then there's speculators. Speculators see that the price is now X. A year ago, it was half X. They anticipate that it will go on a trajectory to be worth 2X next year. They'll buy it at X, and they'll hold it. And they want to flip it within a year and a half. Mm-hmm. They don't intend to hold it forever. They didn't buy it simply because they love it. They don't intend to keep it. Mm-hmm. But they just see it as an investment. And the problem is that utility tool users are buying one to use it and keep it. Collectors, they don't spend their life looking for the original Lloyd Lore F5 and then as soon as they get it, want to sell it as soon as it goes up. No, they bought it because they wanted one. Mm-hmm. But the speculators, as soon as the prices go up enough, they sell them. And the moment they see it leveling off, they immediately get rid of it. They only want it while it's appreciating. Musicians don't come in talking about appreciation of their instrument very much. They just want to get a guitar that works. Collectors appreciate if it appreciates, but that's not their primary motivating driving force. Mm -hmm. They love them. They study them. They write about them. They read about them. They can talk about them for hours on end. As a dealer, if somebody comes in 
I can tell in the first two to three minutes which category of person they are. Utility tool users barely look at the guitar. You hand it to them and immediately they start playing it. They don't look at it much. They play it. They feel it. They listen to it. They see how they bond with it. Does it become an extension of them? Can they play it? Collectors, before they play a note on it, give it a complete forensic exam. They study it very much looking at it the way the zoological taxonomist would, very much the way I look at them when I'm assessing an instrument. Mm-hmm. The speculators, they look at it briefly, but all their conversation, it's, it's like talking about spreadsheets. They talk about how the market is and how well they've been doing with it, how they really enjoy this. But they don't talk much about playing. They don't talk much about originality. They talk about value and appreciation and profitability. They'll tell you they're a collector. They're not. Because collectors don't buy them to get rid of them. Mm-hmm. They buy them to keep. That's right. And collectors really study them. They ask very, very different questions. But the problem is that utility tool users are limited, and there's rare models that they'll pay much over $5,000 for, occasionally as much as ten, just for something to play, because it sounds so good. Collectors will pay significantly more, but even they have a limit because most of them are not necessarily independently wealthy. When, it, when one guitar costs more money than they paid for their house, they drop out. It's because they can't afford it. They literally don't have the money. The speculators may have made millions in real estate or some other field, but they, they could be an investment banker or whatever. They may have a whole lot more money than almost any of the collectors have. Their only limiting factor is they want to get rid of it the moment they see it no longer appreciating. That's all they care about. They want a portfolio of things that appreciate. Collectors have a theme to their collection. It may be something like the history of the Dreadnought Guitar or the Les Paul or the history of the Master Tom Banjo, but you can look at it and there's an actual theme to it. It's not just a random assortment. There's some cohesiveness to the collection. Utility tool users may have multiple guitars, but they, they don't care much about originality. They just care about utility. So if they play sessions, they may have a flat top acoustic and they'll have a resonator guitar and they'll have a solid body electric and an arch top acoustic and a hollow body electric and a semi-hollow electric. But the point is, each one of them serves a different purpose. Right. It's like a plumber may have a hundred wrenches or more of all sorts of sizes or an auto mechanic, but they're not a wrench collector. They are utility tool users. They have what they need. Mm -hmm. There are people who collect vintage tools. They may have the entire history of the monkey wrench or other tools, and they can have tools going back to medieval times on up. They'll pay $3,000 for the right wrench that they wouldn't dare use because they might scratch it or something or break it. 
but um, that's a different. That's collecting. And collecting for guitars, they have the nice thing that they are actually utility usable too. Yeah. People can collect things that have no utilitarian value, like paintings or sculpture. Or they may even collect oil lamps and coal lamps, but they don't use that to light their house. Yeah. Do you do you have any guitars of your own that you have an emotional connection to? Yes, I certainly do. I have about fifty instruments of good quality in my personal collection that are things that are not for sale. And I'm I started out as a collector. I don't have as valuable a collection now as I did actually in 76. But in 76, the market slowed down to darn, darn near nothing, but I sold most of my collection and bought a house and a business building. And actually, if I'd kept the collection, it'd be worth more than my net worth today. Huh. But um, that's, um, but I still have a nice collection of things that I enjoy. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, I still have that as a partially motivating force in my life. Mm-hmm. But like I said, there's three types of buyers: is utility tool users, is speculators, and is collectors. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of things that go in threes. Like there's three ways you can compete in the market. You can be the cheapest. You seldom get rich doing that because usually there's some jerk will come in and undercut you even if he loses money and goes bankrupt. He'll still rob your market share while he's at it. And you can't really do great quality when you're being the cheapest. So the next way you can compete is quality. And quality is very important. But if you have nothing but quality, you may not be very innovative, but if you build the best flat top acoustic, there's room for two or three to make a claim like that. And you can do well with doing something very, very fine quality, like Santa Cruz, for example, mm-hmm. or Collings, where they try to compete on quality. Or you can compete on innovation, combining it with quality. And that's something that's really special. Like when Leo Fender came out with the Broadcaster, it wasn't built better than a Martin or a Gibson, but it did things that they wouldn't do. Mm-hmm. So, and they were not cheap. A good new Fender Stratocaster or Telecaster cost as much money as a lot of acoustic Martins or Gibsons. Fender was making a guitar that cost him less money to build. The workmanship was frankly not quite as good as on a Martin or a Gibson, but they still played well. They were cheaper and easier to make. Didn't require as much skilled labor. But they were well made. They played well, but they absolutely didn't sound like a Martin or a Gibson. Mm -hmm. And innovation can be important. Now, Martin had periods of innovation. The 1840s through the mid-1850s was a period of tremendous innovation at Martin. And another period of great innovation at Martin was late 1920s through the mid-1930s when they developed steel string acoustic guitars. Enormous proto 
creativity there and design work. Today, they can't really claim they've had innovative new designs since late 1934. Mm -hmm. But what they have had that's more innovative is how to use CNC equipment to build them more profitably and more quickly. So the manufacturing techniques are very different, but the basic designs are not. But that's at least something that can be done in threes. Uh, you can compete on price, on quality, or on innovation. So far as what makes a guitar really good, what, what separates a mediocre guitar from a truly superb guitar, the number one thing is, in, is not what you might think of first, it's design. Mm-hmm. It's not workmanship and it's not materials. Mm-hmm. It's design. If you have a great design and materials that may be mediocre but good enough that they're not going to fall apart and workmanship that may look sloppy but is structurally stable, you can have a great design with sloppy looking, boring looking workmanship, not pretty and materials that are mediocre, and you can still have an excellent sounding instrument. Not quite as good as if you had superb materials. But if you have really good materials coupled with decent, good structural workmanship, but not very cosmetic, and a really great design, it will sound great. If you combine that with good cosmetic workmanship, it will not only play great and sound great, it'll sell. Mm-hmm. Because ugly instruments don't sell as well. But um, there are some products that don't have to look good at all to play and sell well. And actually, when you get down to it, a Fender Telecaster is not all that attractive if you compare it to a sunburst Les Paul with really pretty wood and you know, curly grain and binding and inlay and all mm-hmm. that. Um, the telecaster looks like a utility tool. Well, I think it was, right? So I mean, very, very, very well designed tool. Yeah, for sure. Incredibly well designed oh, tool. Yeah. And the lines are pretty good. The Stratocaster, the lines are superbly good. Mm-hmm. The aesthetics of a Strat, there's no ornamentation, but the lines themselves are very, very well done. The proportions look good, the curves look good, and the guitars feel good. Mm -hmm. The telly doesn't feel as good to most people as a Strat. Strats have that body contour, and the Strat has six bridge saddles rather than three. It intonates easier. But uh, the Strat's a superbly well-designed guitar. The Broadcaster and Telecaster are also very well-designed, but the Strat is probably Leo Fender's best design and best sense of aesthetics. Mm-hmm. What, um, what's your opinion of, of the whole relicking thing? Because I see that all the time, especially from Fender. Relicking, you said? Yeah. Well, you know, I spent much of my career looking for the cleanest, most pristine,
15 original examples bring a lot more money and things that had wear and progressively more and more wear would bring less and less money. Mm-hmm. And I am somewhat bemused or amused or whatever you want to say by the fact that you can buy the closet classic with nowhere, which costs less than the, excuse me, the, the new old stock model with nowhere, which costs less than the closet classic with a little bit of wear, which costs less than the relic with more wear, which costs less than the one that custom shop that's really beat to crap. Mm-hmm. Um, at first I thought that they just wouldn't sell. I was wrong. They sell really well. And uh, I still don't especially like them. And a lot of the ones that are beat looking really don't look like natural, graceful, true wear. Um, it's really hard to get fake wear that looks quite the same as real wear. Mm-hmm. Or at least it's more time consuming it to do it where the wear looks real. So with but, the, uh, I, so the, I have a question. What With the advent of the popularity of the relic, do, are, you, are you seeing now that people will pay more for a vintage relic, a real vintage Strat or Telly, that is that is was relics. No, I am not. Okay. Uh, what I still see in vintage is they'll pay a big premium for pristine, mm-hmm. and that it's much harder to sell the beat-looking ones. The people who are happy with a beat-looking one are perfect happy to play a relic rather than the real deal. That's interesting. They're, they're, they're most of them, they'll pay a bit more for a real one uh-huh. than genuinely be, but they won't pay, they won't they, they won't pay real collectible prices. I mean, the price for an original Strat or Tele that is really pretty heavily worn, even if it's set up in very good playing order, is very significantly less than a clean one. Uh, nowhere remotely near, not even half or not even a third as much as for a pristine one. And uh, so that that's different. Mm-hmm. But for the new ones, they'll pay extra for the relic. What does that say about the psychology of the buyer, you think? Well, when you get into analyzing, collecting, or much of what drives musicians is neurotic anyway. (laughs) But uh, collecting as a whole, whether it's musical instruments or art, tends to be addictive, obsessive, compulsive behavior. Um, I never did claim to be sane myself. <laughs> uh, my standard line about sanity is I believe it would be boring, but I am not sure, never having personally experienced it. <laughs> so speaking of relics, I recently got to play the uh, Mike Bloomfield, uh, that Telecaster that was all cut up and turned into a lefty. Um Oh. That was disgusting. That guitar was offered to me, and, uh, and they were thinking of maybe asking like $85,000. Yeah. They wanted to consign it. There was just no way that, uh, to me, it was ridiculous. 
you know, I knew Mike. I knew him before he even played electric guitar. Mm -hmm. I remember when he was just a good acoustic, he was a great acoustic blues player. But that's not Mike's guitar anymore. Right. That's the carcass of Mike's guitar. It didn't even have the original pickups in it anymore. Oh, it didn't? I didn't know that. No. It was pickups like the originals, but it it had been completely rewired. the original it's not Mike's pickups and the body has been changed in shape so far as I'm concerned that's not Mike's guitar anymore it's an abomination it's it's like seeing identifying a friend in the morgue <laughs> you may recognize him and that, that may be him or his body but you know he's had his throat slashed and he's dead and it's revolting and it's nauseating and I think I've made my point as to what I think about that I guitar think, I think so yeah So the people who cut that thing up should roast in hell for what they did but I'll be damned if I'm going to pay extra to buy it because it was the carcass of Mike's guitar right. it would make me sick every time I'd look at it yeah. it's not Mike's guitar anymore if it's been mutilated after he died yeah. and you know, if he did it himself, it would be, at least be memorabilia. Right. Like Stevie Ray's Vaughn's Stratocaster that was beat to crap. Mm-hmm. At least it was his, and that is the way he had it. Mm-hmm. But if you take his guitar and you refinish it, it ain't his anymore. Mm-hmm. It's been altered in such a way that it's no longer the memorabilia guitar. It's not his. Mm-hmm. And so far as I'm concerned, that guitar was not Mike's. It has components that were there on Mike's guitar, but it's no longer Mike's guitar. Yeah. What, what's your opinion on these, um, when, when they go ahead and they make a replica, like they went ahead and they made a replica of Peter Frampton's uh, 54 Les Paul, um, the Phoenix, the one that came back from the, from the dead. Right. Well, that, that guitar, uh, you know, was there's nothing very original about his guitar. You have to figure his guitar had an Aldeco 5 pickup in the neck position, a P90 in the bridge position originally, no middle pickup, no humbucking pickups. Right. It would have had the fretless wonder frets. You know, uh, Frampton's guitar is so modified in no way does it resemble what it started out as. Right. It would not be collectible if it wasn't his. Mm-hmm. But, you know, if somebody's a Frampton fan and they want to have one like his, yeah, more power to them, but um, I'd rather have a real one. Mm-hmm. But, you know, if you're a Frampton fan... Uh, I got nothing much against that. You're not destroying an original to do it. Right. You're building a guitar, and it's a tribute guitar. Fine. Mm-hmm. Doesn't bother me. Yeah. So when it comes... Do I feel a great urge to go get one? No, but... Um, you know, I certainly will deal things like that if they're offered to me at the right price on consignment or trade or outright purchase I acquire things of that kind I do not acquire mutilated abominations right so like in in regards to mods when someone comes in and 
shows up with a sixty a sixty strat with a Floyd Rose in it. What are you gonna? What would you That's do? Nauseating. I know, but what would you do? You can't fix it. It's been routed. It's fucked. Yeah. So you would you would probably turn it down. You'd probably turn it down then. Well, it depends how much they're asking. Mm-hmm. After all, they might be asking little enough that you could take it apart and sell the parts for more. Mm-hmm. Or you know you can you can have a neck and all the electronics, and you could make a body and you could put it on a vintage replica body. Or you know we can. We occasionally will find things like just a neck that's on a body that's been mutilated or just a neck alone. I have a very nice 1957 Strat neck waiting to find a body right now. Mm-hmm. But uh, those things can be valuable and very useful at times. Mm-hmm. Um, but if it was owned by a well-known performer so it's a memorabilia piece it may still be very saleable just like C.V. Ray Vaughn Strat somebody would pay a hell of a lot of money for that thing even though it's whooped yeah or Willie Nelson's N20 Martin yeah trigger yeah do I want to play a guitar like that no it no longer sounds great frankly it never did sound that great Willie plays it with a pickup yeah sound you're hearing is more the Baldwin Prismatone pickup than it is that guitar. Mm-hmm. There's nothing that great about N20 Martins, but, but you know, I can still sell one that is that model in clean condition will bring about $5,000. Mm-hmm. But, you know, there's a lot of interesting guitars out there that uh, may be modified that still have value, but not worth anywhere remotely near as much as if they'd left them alone. Mm-hmm. You know, especially during the seventies, where companies DiMarzio and Stars Guitars and you can see more Duncan that you know, they made bridges, brass bridges, brass nuts, replacement tone and volume knobs, and. Uh, you can even get replacement necks for bolt-on neck guitars. and The more you modified them, the less they were worth. Even if it made it suit you better, you like the new pickups better. The fact is, for resale value, originality is where it's still at. Mm-hmm. People want clean, original ones. But if they're buying a new one, they'll pay extra for a relic, and they'll often enough pay a lot of money for custom shop fenders in no way resemble anything other than a boogered guitar. Mm-hmm. And with a Gibson-style humbucker in the bridge position and you know, just modifications that would be an abomination on an original one, they'll do a custom shop guitar that is basically a replica of a screwed-up old one that somebody has customized badly and but again I'm not as troubled by that because they're building it from scratch they didn't damage any original to do it mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so what when is a humbucking pickup does work pretty well on a telly in the lead or a strat especially in the lead position yeah. 
I would never want to change the lead pick of Anatelli. They're great. But Anatelli, a humbucking pickup in the rhythm position, and a Telly pickup in the lead position is quite good. Mm-hmm. But I'll be damned if I'm going to cut up an original to do that. Yeah, for sure. And we see a lot of them done that way, where they've often all done it with what looks like a hatchet. Yeah, they just, people are so crude in what they do. And mm-hmm. some of the dumbest things are, there's so much butchery, but half the time in our repair shop is spent trying to undo people's previous work. But there's just some things you just can't undo. Mm-hmm. But you know, people don't always use very good judgment. Like, it's amazing how often I see people who have a case that doesn't really fit well. Like they have a case where the guitar is too long to fit in the case. So they'll take a saw and they'll just saw the end of the case off. So they take it, sticks out of the case a bit. <laughs> that's something I've never that's seen. better that's than amazing. the ones who do the other track. They, they don't want to damage the case and there's no tuners at the top inch of the peg head. So you just saw the end of the peg head oh off so it fits God. in your case. Oh my God. People actually do that. I've had several like that. Oh and they're not necessarily just doing it on a cheapy guitar like a K. I mean, they'll do it on something like a pre-war D28. Mark. Oh, no. Oh, my God. They're just idiots. <laughs> and you could do a whole book full of illustrations of that kind of stuff. It would be, be like a book of murder victims and, you know, taking you know, people with their heads blown apart and yeah. whatever. And it to me it, it's you know, I, I haven't really wanted to do a book of that because I, I still my father was a pathologist and I, I saw my first autopsy before I was 10 and I, I literally find looking at a mutilated instrument almost more upsetting than looking at a dead body I, I understand I understand some, some idiot deliberately just screwed up an instrument. You know, murder victims are horrible to look at. Mutilated guitars are horrible to look at. A person who died from cancer or whatever, it may be bad, but nobody deliberately screwed him over. Right. It's, um, but at any rate, I'm, I'm going a little out on a limb and my thoughts on that, but um, <laughs> it's, very, very much irritates me to see instruments that have been deliberately butchered yeah. by people who just. You know, I remember one time going in a guitar show and somebody came in with an original Firebird Five Gibson Electric. It was worth about fifteen thousand dollars at the time, except that they didn't like the. I brought a tailpiece, so they took it off and drilled big holes in the top for a stop tailpiece and put it. I said, yeah. And then they want. Then they brought it in. They wanted to sell it. I said, why did you do that? It was worth so much more money. Well, I had to. I, I couldn't play it the way it was. Well, I didn't have to. They could have traded it for something else and gotten a guitar that would have suited them, plus had 10000 left over. Wow. As it is, they took that guitar and they just fucked it. That's insane. You, you know what? That would make an incredible book. I mean, just from a... Well, there's an, there's an enormous amount of that stuff out there. I mean, it's like it's like a train wreck. It's horrible, but you can't turn away. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's a lot of that out there. 
when it uh, when it comes to staff at the store, I mean, you have a lot of people working there, and they're they're doing restorations and stuff like that. What's the process for for choosing somebody at the store? Uh, I repeat the question again. What, what's yeah, the process for what? Yeah, I know that you have. A, what's your process for for choosing a someone to work at the store? Someone that's doing restorations oh, yeah. or so far as. Hiring a repair person. Yeah. Well, first thing is we want to see samples of their work. Mm-hmm. That tells a great deal. You can look at and see if they've done really good work or not. If you have as a sample in your portfolio of you installing a humbucking pickup on a 1957 Telecaster, you ain't going to get a job with me. <laughs> fact that you were even willing to do it disqualifies you (laughs) but I want to see if you do neat clean work and that the work is respectful in repair the ultimate goal is to be totally anonymous if you're a painter or a sculptor an artist and someone says that it's really wonderful, your work is so distinctive, it's like a signature, but I can tell from across the room who did it, and it's, you know, I can tell it's yours. If you're an artist, that's great. You want to be distinctive. If you're a musician, and by the time you've played the first 30 seconds, somebody can listen and say, oh yeah, I know who that is. And that, that, that can be a compliment. Mm-hmm. If you're a repairman and you can say the same thing, it means you're a slob or a butcher. Because the ultimate goal of the repairman is you take an instrument that has problems, and when you're done, it's like it never happened. Mm-hmm. The crack is invisible. Or the fret job looks absolutely factory spec. You can't tell it was done. Or a big scratch that somebody had an accident and it was a really ugly scratch that was not honest wear, but ugly, mutilating scratch. And you were able to make it virtually disappear. That's great. Or the bridge cracked and it's beyond repair. You can build one and it looks absolutely like the original. That's great. But most repair people don't think that way. They're not that busy trying to do exact replica bridge. Or most of them can't fix a crack where it's cosmetically, their life depends on it. They can't fix it. They don't know how. They can glue it back together. They can make it structurally pretty solid, but they can't make it cosmetically good. And to do it right, you have to have an appreciation for the workmanship of the maker. And if it's something like Martin, where they've been in business for 180 some years, 183 at this point, you have to not only know that it's a D28 bridge that you're making a replica of, you have to know what year bridge, it, they're not all the same. 
what they did in 36 doesn't look like what they did in 39, which doesn't look like what they did in 45, and certainly doesn't look like they do now. It may be similar, but it's not identical. The ultimate repairman is likely not to become famous because his work is invisible. Whereas a builder, the work is very distinctive. And some of these builders, long after they're dead, they're famous. You know, D'Angelico only made about 1,100 guitars, but he's still famous today. And he mm -hmm. died in 64. Equisto mm -hmm. made fewer guitars. He died in 95. He's still famous. There are violin makers who died over 200 years ago who are famous. The finest repair people, you don't hear people brag about the repair job. Oh, yeah, I bought this guitar, and it looks like an elephant stepped on it, and see, it looks absolutely perfect now. And, yeah, you know, so-and-so did the work, and I sure am proud of it. Now, if it looks perfect, they don't mention it. Mm-hmm. And when they're selling it, do they wax eloquently about the crack that was repaired that's now invisible? No, if you can't see it, they don't talk about it. Mm -hmm. And so great repair people often enough don't get a lot of recognition, although people go to them to have their instruments. In fact, it's almost like money laundering. Mm -hmm. They get their instrument laundered so that they can sell it. But we do disclose the work that we do. And there are some things that we could hide that we don't. For example, when we do lacquer touch-up, we do not fix them so that they will fluoresce the same. You know, if you look at old lacquer, it fluoresces a sort of yellowish green mm -hmm. under black light. Mm -hmm. And uh, new, new lacquer looks almost black. It stands out very sharply when you do a repair that the new lacquer under black light just jumps. You can, you can tell instantly where it was done. We know how not to do that. We can mix fluorescent dye in that will at least temporarily look just right. But 10 years later, it'll start showing up. And we are not trying to misrepresent instruments. We're, we will try do our damnedest to restore them where they look great, feel great, sound great. But we do keep an careful record of what we've done, and when we're selling it, we do disclose what we did. Mm -hmm. Sometimes that makes them harder for us to sell, but uh, we do disclose it. Yeah. There was a book that came out a few years ago called Kalamazoo Gals. Um, yes, it had to do it had to do with the Gibson Banner guitars uh, during World yes. War World War Two. It's a guitar that I've 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 seen them at shows and I've played them and they were very pleasant to play and some of them sounded great and some of them sounded not so great. What's your opinion of the Gibson Banners? In my opinion, they are not Gibson's best guitars. The author, certainly John Thomas, went at great length saying how he thinks they're the best, and he attributed a lot of this to the attention that women would give more than men. And the more I have studied this, the less I agree with him. First, I've never felt that those were Gibson's best guitars. 
I think a good pre-World War II advanced jumbo Gibson blows any banner Gibson ever made out of the water. Hmm. But I also think that the J-35 Gibson or an L-00 Gibson, which were not expensive guitars, the L-00 was one of Gibson's cheapest student model flat top guitars, I think is better than a similar size banner Gibson. And the J-35 was only 37.50 when it was new retail. And I think they're better than the banner guitars. Um, but I also would find no real credibility in his statement that these guitars were built primarily by women. It is true that there were a lot of women working at the factory, and as far as the photos, they show women staff, but there's no great evidence that these women were really doing most of the heavy parts of building. Mm -hmm. uh, and when he interviewed the people, the women in the book, if you, have you read the book? Yes, I have. Well, you notice that the women he interviewed didn't build guitars. Mm -hmm. They worked in the string department, or they put binding on, or one gal did some inlay work, one woman cut some braces, but they didn't make necks, they didn't bend sides, they didn't build the tops or the backs. They might put binding on them. You see, a lot of the people at Martin today who apply binding are women. But um, the wartime guitars, were built at a time when they had the worst quality tuners ever. They couldn't get metal for truss rods, so they could, when they ran out of truss rods, they just did them with none. They had some of the big clubby necks, mm -hmm. and overall, their workmanship is not better than the pre-war models. The materials are not as good, because a lot of the materials were not readily available. You know, if you have stuff like ebony, they didn't use ebony on those because you know, ebony was from India and parts of Africa. But in order to get ebony during World War II, if you were bringing ebony into the U.S., you're going to have to have ships running the, sub the German submarine blockades. Do you really want to spend that time on... You know, they have higher priorities in bringing in ebony for guitars. Mm -hmm. um, but if you read the interviews in that book, none of the women that he interviewed did the major construction on guitars. The men were still doing that. Mm -hmm. In fact, the women in the string department, some of them said they'd never been to the other parts of the factory. They went into their section and that was it. Mm -hmm. They knew there were men working on guitars elsewhere. Mm -hmm. But the women, the most difficult tasks that women were doing, some of them were doing inlay. But most of the inlay that Gibson did, they bought. There weren't that many women who were cutting pearl at Gibson because most of the inlay they did, they bought from commercial pearls cutters. So about all the Gibson would have to do is inlay it into the guitar. They didn't have to actually cut the pearl. Mm -hmm. And yeah, the book was, if 
frankly, not as well researched. And the embarrassing thing for me is I wrote a little uh, commentary on it when I had read a couple of chapters and I hadn't read the whole book yet. I wrote him some, uh, pre- uh, some pretty high praise. It's right there on the book cover. Mm-hmm. And I wouldn't do that today after having read the whole book through. Yeah. So the guitars themselves... But my opinion of the Banner guitars is that they are... They're good guitars that are not as good as the ones made in the 30s. Right. Okay. And I, and like I said, I've, I've played a few, and, and it depended on the one that I was playing. I think I played four of them. And I'd have to say two of them were, were really exceptional, and the other two were not so good. But if you play the ones from the 30s, they're more consistently good. Yeah. I have to come as visit. As far as this comment about them being lighter in weight, they're not. No, they they're heavier than the pre-war ones. Yeah, they didn't seem that light to me. They're not. No. And some of them have huge clubby necks, yeah. which I find semi-reasonably comfortable, but uh, it's not as comfortable dimensions as the pre-war ones. Yeah. Can can you think of a, a guitar company other than, say, Martin, Gibson, or Fender in the last oh, 20, 25 years, or maybe 30 years, that you thought, wow, that's that's pretty darn good? Well, I think Collings are pretty good, but I don't prefer them over Martin. Um, Taylor is making a surprisingly good 12-string. The Taylor 12-strings are actually very good. Uh, The the regular line Taylors are pretty damn good, especially plugged in. They do a very good job. Mm -hmm. Taylors are good. They don't inspire me the way old Martins do. Mm -hmm. But they're they're well made. They're machine made for the most part. They're very very automated, but their workmanship is very good. And they're they're well designed. Uh, Santa Cruz makes a nice, very nice guitar. High degree of workmanship. A lot of skill involved in those. Uh, on electrics, certainly PRS has made some good electrics. But uh, right now, frankly, I can't sell PRS guitars for anywhere near enough to justify being a PRS dealer. Mm -hmm. Uh, If I have a squeaky clean used PRS that still has the hang tags in the case, I can sell it if it's at least 25% below dealer cost Mm -hmm. for a new one Mm -hmm. of the same model. But otherwise, I can't sell it. Yeah. 
What's your, what's your impression of all the boutique builders now? I mean, uh, it, it boggles my mind well, that there are so many. Well, for one thing, they're not all equal. No, that's there true. Some are very good, and most of them stink. Yeah. Or most of them build you know, nicely ornamented furniture, and they have about as much tone as a strung up chest of drawers. Um, some of them are very good. You can't lump them all together. They're not all the same. Mm-hmm. And somebody like Kevin Ryan builds a damn good guitar. Mm-hmm. Kim Walker builds a really good guitar. John Leon builds a superb guitar. Steve Gilchrist builds great new mandolins. But they're not all the same at all. Some of the boutique builders, I think, have a great sense of aesthetics and truly are doing a fine job. The majority of them I find completely uninspiring, and they have lousy resale value, but that's not true of all of them. Mm -hmm. Do do you think it's it's, uh, just a matter of, you know, as far as resale value, do you think it's just a matter of finding, waiting it out to find someone who's going to want that particular instrument? No. I don't think that at all. Mm -hmm. If it's a really superbly crafted, fine instrument, you don't have to wait near as long. Mm -hmm, True. Um, If it's an uninspiring, lousy-sounding guitar, um... I don't think you'll ever get a really good price on resale value. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the boutique builders rely on customers who want a custom order instrument made to their specs. It's like a custom tailored suit of clothing. They don't want a guitar that was made for somebody else. Mm -hmm. They don't want a guitar that the dealer has. It's a generic guitar. No, they have to have a relationship with the builder. They have to call him up and talk to him 10 times about neck dimensions and intonation and every little thing about how he wants everything done so it will custom fit his hand. And, you know, the people who talk the most about the feel of the neck have one thing in common. They don't play worth a damn. Hmm. The people who talk more than two minutes about intonation are people who typically can't tune. I'm not saying bad intonation is okay, but most guitars by major makers do play in tune. The people who talk at the greatest length about intonation uniformly can't play well. The people who are telling you how how sensitive they are to the feel of a neck, really great players can play on a wide variety of different feeling necks, and Duke is great. But um, when it comes down to it, some of the boutique builders also, the ones who are getting the absolute top prices now, are pricing themselves so high Mm -hmm. that the only people who can afford them are not really going to play them much. Like, your model Leon builds a great guitar, but his base price to start is $50,000. Yeah, that's 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 just... Do you see anybody using one on stage anymore? No. No. 
players aren't using them. Yeah, that's a moment. Angelico made guitars for musicians. They played them. Mm-hmm. And his guitars cost new, about the same price as a new Gibson. He got more money for it, though, than Gibson did because Gibson sold them to music stores and Angelico sold them straight to the end buyer. Mm-hmm. And Gibson had to sell it at half price to a dealer until later when they got acquired by CMI and then CMI took a third. So Gibson, when they made something like a Sunburst Les Paul in 1959 that listed at $265, what Gibson got for the guitar was 265 times one-half times two-thirds. Because wholesale was half of 265 and Gibson got one-third less than that from the owner, from CMI, Chicago Musical Instrument Company. They really had to build, and they had to be able to support employees in a factory on yeah. that. So they had to build them remarkably cheaply. Yeah. Well, um, the, the, what, what's your impression? Angelica would charge in the same price, though, as people would pay in the store for a new Gibson. Right. That was such a different instrument, too. I mean, such a different sensibility, well, just the way it was the way it was built, too. Well, yes, but uh, the interesting thing is, Angelico copied Gibson's. And early on in his career, starting in '32, his guitars were just copies of an L5. Mm-hmm. Copied the 16-inch L5, except his were about 16 and a half wide. But otherwise, they looked almost identical to an L5. They had the Gibson peghead shape, the Gibson body shape, the Gibson pick guard shape, Gibson inlay pattern on the fingerboard, but the headstock inlay was different. But the peghead shape was identical to Gibson. Mm-hmm. And then in 1935, Gibson came out with their advanced model. Large tops were 17 inches wide. And then later in the year, 35, they came out with a Super 400 at 18. And those Gibsons were X-braced. Well, Gibson promptly, D'Angelico, excuse me, promptly started doing X-braced guitars after that. D'Angelico didn't come up with X-bracing. He copied it from Gibson. D'Angelico didn't come up with 17 and 18 inch guitars on his own. He copied that from Gibson. But once he started doing the 17 and 18 inch guitars, his XL and New Yorker models, he started changing the ornamentation a bit where his peg hitch shape became his own. But still his XL had blocks on the fingerboard just like an L5, and his New Yorker had split blocks just like a Super 400. Mm-hmm. He had a lot of Gibson influence on what he did. He was building sort of super Gibsons, handcrafted, sophisticated Gibson designs. Stromberg was doing more handcrafted, sophisticated Epiphone designs. But um, anyway, we could babble on all day about it. (laughs) I had a question for you in regards to some of the newer Gibsons. What was your impression of the E-Tune when it first came out, that robo-tuner? It solves 
didn't know was there. <laughs> and I still can't figure out. I mean, if you can't tune, you can be stone deaf and tuned with an electronic tuner. You don't even have to hear. <laughs> and the robot tuners have gears and motors in each gear. And if one thing in the system screws up, the whole thing won't work. Right. And the more moving parts and more complexity you have, the more they become trouble prone. But those guitars, like the 2015 models, they didn't just have robot tuners. They had asymmetrical wide necks. Mm -hmm. And they had printed circuit port electronics that mm -hmm. would be incompatible with anything else. You couldn't change pickups or anything. And they had goofy nuts. Oh, the zero uh, fret. They, yeah. they had that zero fret built mm -hmm. into the nut. Yeah. There was a height adjustable nut that didn't work very well. And they just don't feel right. They have the same string spacing at the nut as the previous necks, which were 1 and 11 sixteenths wide at the nut. But these new necks were 1.95 wide. But the string spacing at the nut was identical to the 1 and 11 sixteenths nut. That's because Henry Jeskowitz fancies himself a guitar player, but he was having trouble pushing the low and the high E strings off the edge of the board because his technique sucks. <laughs> so he had to build the necks wide, but the nut spacing standard, so you couldn't push those strings off the edge. Mm -hmm. So you solve a tuning problem that never had been a problem before, and they really don't work as well. So they don't tune very well. The necks are asymmetrical and wide. The string spacing is weird. The nut's weird. The circuit board electronics is weird and not versatile. Other than that, they're great. And then the price went up by almost 30%. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I mean, uh, I did. A, we did a whole episode on... Henry on must have liked them enough because he was willing to keep making them when they had over 30,000 of them in the warehouse. Well, yeah. They kept making more and more, so Henry apparently really liked collecting them. <laughs> According to the Moody Report, they, they, they spent $3.5 million on R&D just for that stupid thing. Well, it was uh, something that the designers had never intended it to be the standard for all of them. No. Henry played it and liked it enough that he declared that they would do all of them that way. Right. And all the standard production guitars for the year have those features, and uh, they're unassailable. Well, it's interesting. I've been running into them here and there in stores, and I've been seeing uh, that some of them got sent back and they took off the E-Tune and, and they threw on regular tuners and sent it back out for sale, and you can yeah, see... Yeah, but still necks. Well, they, yeah, for sure, but you can see a crease in the paint. Well, another feature is that when... It's not just the tuners. The necks are asymmetrical. They're wide. The right. string spacing is but weird. The, but the weird part is that... The weird part is you can see a crease in the paint where the E-Tune was. 
So, and they're asking top dollar for that. I just don't understand it. Well, uh, I think Henry and Donald Trump both are trying to resurrect the image of P.T. Barnum. <laughs> yes, a sucker is born every minute. Yes. <laughs> well, you know, I think that's a good place for us to put a pin in it. Well, there you have part two of our in-depth conversation with Mr. George Groon. Food for thought, huh? Uh, since doing this interview, I must have listened to this, I don't know, four times already, all the way through. And it's it's sobering. His, his, uh, his thoughts on this, on all of it, is really pretty amazing. He's very pragmatic, and um, I appreciate his honesty. He, uh, he doesn't pull any punches. Um, he's passionate about what he does. He loves what he does. I mean, and um, he, he wants to see a future for it, not just for, for him, but for, for everybody who's uh, left behind. So uh, next week, we will have part three of this. And uh, it's, it's another excellent conversation. And uh, we really start to dig even deeper. All right. Cool. I hope you enjoyed it. We got to get out of here. But in the meantime, don't forget GuitarRadioShow.com, GuitarRadioShow at gmail.com. Don't forget about Nico's USA Pickups Giveaway. Uh, Go to GuitarRadioShow.com to enter for that. And for those of you who want to make a purchase at Nico's USA Pickups.com, they have a 10% uh, 10 discount for all GRS listeners. until May 31st, use the promo code GRS to get your 10% off on any purchase with with uh, Nico's USA. And don't forget about the lock knob giveaway. Go to guitarradioshow.com to do that. And uh, we'll see you on the next episode of Guitar Radio Show. Take care of yourselves. Take care of each other. Keep on playing. And please, buy it. Don't steal it. We'll see you. Peace. Everybody say, you, Ed. I like this crowd already. GRS Production. New episodes of Guitar Radio Show air every Wednesday on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, Podbay, Player FM, Podomatic, and of course on guitarradioshow.com.